On this episode of Radcast Outdoors, we sit down with Freshwater Fishing Hall of Famer, Bill Simentel. Bill is one of the best bass fishermen of all time, especially when you're looking at the category of big bass, like bass over 10 pounds. Bill shares his experience and insights on fish behavior, fishing tactics, and so much more. If you're a bass fisherman, this is a must-listen-to episode of Radcast Outdoors. We had so much good material from discussing bass fishing with Bill, we just couldn't fit it into one episode. We hope you sit back and enjoy this episode of Radcast Outdoors. This episode of Radcast Outdoors is brought to you by PK Lures, Bow Spider, and High Mountain Seasonings. Fish on! Hey, Radcast is on. Hunting, fishing, and everything in between. This is Radcast Outdoors. Here are David Merrill and Patrick Edwards. Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Radcast Outdoors. I'm Patrick Edwards. I'm David Merrill. And welcome back to the studio. David's been out traveling again, but we got him in here so he could do a podcast with us and actually have somebody on here that I've been wanting to have on the podcast for a very long time, Freshwater Fishing Hall of Famer, Bill Simentel. How are you doing tonight? Guys, I am doing wonderful. How about you? Oh, good, man. I'm I'm a little more rested than David. David's been road warrior in it, but uh, I, I think I'm doing just slightly better, huh? What do you think, David? I'll try and match your energy, Bill. I'll try. <laughs> I mean, we, we'll, uh, we've been burning the candle pretty hard trying to show people our product. So I'm really excited as we get into this to kind of hear just your experience of industry and and how things all came about and so we'll get deeper into that later but when you say you hit the road though are you hitting the road of just more business or you, you've got to be doing some hunting and fishing there's well, got to be something that- <laughs> yeah i was in south africa five weeks ago so it's not all work but most of it is okay then i don't want to hear anything sit down in that chair and <laughs> what you do so that is outstanding and i am taking patrick fishing up uh to our family cabin in alaska in august and that's gonna be epic that is epic yeah i'm looking forward to that i'm i'm trying to save up my energy for that i'm gonna need it reeling in all those salmon so (laughs) it's gonna be a good time but just to do a little introduction if you've been in the fishing world for any amount of time you know who bill is and especially if you've read like in fishermen watched any kind of like bass tournament shows or anything like that bill's been around a long time and he's been doing a ton of work in the fishing industry not just as a tournament angler but also as a lure designer you know one of my favorite tv personalities i love the energy that you bring to the shows and how much fun you have catching bass kind of like you and al linder kind of those two guys that i look up to you bring forth a ton of energy and people know you're excited when you're catching fish and that's always been fun to watch just to put this in perspective, this guy has over 500 bass, over 10 pounds. That is extremely hard to do. Like if you're talking to people in the industry, that's like a musky fisherman saying, I got a thousand muskies. I mean, that's like really, really hard to accomplish. Not to mention also, you know, you were a firefighter for many years. You've, you've served the state of California. You've done a ton of different things. You've won a bunch of different titles. I, again, I'm just so happy that you came on the show. You know, we had Katie Carry on who participated in some of your junior, you know, tournaments, which was awesome. And uh, she had such a great experience and, you know, kind of put us together and got us connected so just again welcome to the show man it's so good to have you no i appreciate it i know what you guys do for the youth kids and building radcast at a state of wyoming in california you think it's 
you know, it, it's so far apart. But when you start mixing in hunting, fishing, outdoors, we're all one big family. And yeah. you'd be, you, you're really surprised when, like, I found more of a career kind of in fishing, but everything we do, you guys probably didn't know this, but in the fire department, I shot trap and skeet for the fire department Olympics for years. Oh, and wow. I did three I did 3D archery shooting competitions, and back in the 90s, I was, you know, third overall California State doing 3D shoots in some of the competitions. So we all blend together. And I think, you know, when you look at the outdoors, it doesn't matter where you're from, anywhere in the U.S., that we all have something that we can relate to and use to our advantage to improve ourselves or either help other people. So you guys are doing an outstanding job, and I've been watching you too, you know, because you... We talked before. I mean, it's funny how we're all joined together at the hits. And uh, like anything I could do to help another fisherman or hunter or anybody, you know, that's what we're here for. That's what makes the game so fun. Well, I think something I've noticed is people who have been successful in this industry. There's there's the guys that are out there to make the buck, but the guys that want to promote the sport, want to get the youth involved, want to really just be genuine. It shines through after a while, right? And those are the ones that I still, to this day, look up to. Yeah, same here. Yeah, and I wanted to kick this off because I've been following you. I remember reading about your big old swim baits catching those massive bass out there in California years and years ago and in Fisherman. And so I wanted you to kind of back up even beyond that and talk about how you got your start, how you got even interested in the outdoors, fishing, hunting. Who was it that really got you into that? And kind of talk about the progression as as you went along through your youth into the outdoors. You guys don't have enough time. <laughs> <laughs> days and days, right? Um, no, you know what? You've got to throw it back to um, my pops. My dad grew up back in the time where hunting and fishing and stuff, it was a it was a lifestyle. We didn't come from a rich family. We came from a family of outdoors anglers that uh, we got by. We never kept up with the Joneses. That was my dad's favorite saying. So when we're looking for substance to try to live off food, or enjoyment or something, hunting and fishing. Dad, dad brought me into the game. And like I said, I grew up dove hunting and pheasant hunting and deer hunting and doing all the, the fun things and that. And then we also fished. So, and as you, I mean, Radcast is right there. You get in the springtime when it's fishing season, you're doing it. When turkey season comes around, you put the rods away, you go turkey hunting. When that stops, here comes the rut. You're going out there and you're going archery shooting first and then you're going deer hunting. We did the whole thing. And then what happened was, you just get into a groove with certain things. Everybody's really good. Like I didn't say the jack of all trades, but there's always that one moment where there is a path that is brighter that you could build on. You could do more stuff in. And, uh, we, we fished a lot. Dad and I fished a lot. And the, what really got me going into big fish is we always went for the enjoyment of fishing, but I was always this brat kid. I always competed with my dad. You know, we always looked for the bragging rights. So competition between friends, family, parents, it's a good thing. It's a good thing if it's, if it's brought up right and you have a good focus of what it's supposed to mean on competition is, is growth, building, and learning more. So I remember that where it really started with my dad is we were out there at the Cass Steak Lake when I was eight. So I wrote a book. There's a book out there, and it kind of talks about the beginning, you know, when I caught my first big bass at eight on a dead night crawler. And, you know, all day long, we left the lid on the night crawlers open. They dried out. We pull up to this dock at the lower lake. And my dad's like going, you, you can't even get that on a hook. So the competition is, first of all, I had to see if I could bait this hook with a dead, dried night crawler. And I jumped off and I went over to the dock real quick. And I got on shore. And my dad's sitting there and go, 
you ain't going to catch anything on that pathetic worm. And I remember throwing it out, hits the water, and I see a squirrel. And I caught my, I got an eight and a half pounder. And at eight, and that was my, I remember getting in the boat, we put on a stringer, you know, this is back in the eighties, early eighties. And I remember putting on the stringer and stuff. My dad looking at me and go, man, I, I fished my whole life, kid. And I only got an eight and a half pounder. Like, I mean, he goes, you better enjoy this because it'll never happen again. And that's the thing that clicked. And it's almost, it's that thing where, you know, the parents say you can't do something. I was the kid that says, Hey, you can't do that. So I never got into drugs. I never got into drink. I never did any of that. But fishing, when they said, hey, you can't do that, I was like, okay, game on. <laughs> so right after that, when dad would be trolling like a needlefish for trout at the lower lake, I was like, hey, I'm going to try lead line. And I was trolling big lures before people really was even thinking about doing a big lure going for bass. And before you know it, dad, dad was like, hey, hey, you're killing me. You're killing because <laughs> we, we, I just kept catching fish. You know, there's so many stories in it. So the passion of getting in the outdoors all goes to my dad. and. And that was my story for anybody else's story, even the youth. You know, sometimes you, you have families that are not completely whole. So you see the grandparents jumping on and taking the grandkids out fishing and getting them hooked or a good friend or some type of mentor. Mentor. So the biggest thing that we're trying to do, you know, what you guys do at Radcast, what I'm trying to do is you always have that opportunity to tell somebody that there's always somebody there for you to help, to make you better at what you want to do. Is you just got to keep your eyes open and you're willing to knock on the door and walk in and, and do it. So, you know, I give all the credit to my dad. He's not around right now, but uh, I definitely would not be where I'm at without that guy. So I guess the next question is, so there was the bass that really hooked you catching that bass really actually hooked you instead of you hooking that bass. Right. Cause from then on you're all in, you're like, I want to go catch largemouth bass. So I was going to ask you why largemouth, but I, I that must have been the moment, right? That was the moment that really just kind of springboarded you into the largemouth bass kind of kind of scene, didn't it? Well, being around California, Southern California, even back in that day, you know, bass fishing, when you say largemouth bass, I mean, that's the pinnacle of freshwater fishing. You know, that's where a lot of people look at. But mind you, when Dad and I fish, we fish for big stripers. We fish for bluegill. I love catching crappie. So carp. It didn't matter what swam. It just, we always looked at something as a challenge to catch it. And it didn't matter why. But the bass was one of those things. It, it had a, it had a glow to it. You could see in the, it just, it, it sparkled and shined when you go up to somebody back in the day and say, hey, I got a 10 pound carp. And they're like, ooh, what'd you do with this? You know, <laughs> you have cat food. And then they didn't understand that carp, if you learn how to catch carp, you're going to be one unbelievable fisherman because carp, are no joke. They could be the touchiest fish out there to learn. So all this stuff I learned from my dad, all the species, it helped me pursue a career where bass fishing was probably one of the most sought after in the industry of, you know, of getting your name out there or going for a challenge. And I kid you not, even with you guys that a kid at eight years old, that Buck Perry, 22 pound, you know, largemouth bass, it, we were in the right location of California to say, Hey, I have just as much a chance as anybody else catching world record. You know, we're around, we have the right lakes. We have the right forage. Everything was prime from the eighties to 2000. There, there's a shot to drop a world record. Now that would have been cool. So yeah, it's all, uh, the catching the night crawler fish definitely kind of started it, but mind you, I was, 
I was in. I was I was hooked no matter what was swimming out there. I was happy to catch a two pound bluegill just as good as a ten pound carp or a, a twelve pound largemouth. So it's all the same. So I was a pretty young kid and I went uh up to just one of the little ponds by our house, probably eight years old, seven years old, rode my bike with the neighbor and I caught a bluegill. I took a mason jar, brought it home, put it in the mason jar, covered it up. And I was like, cause I'd seen pickled eggs, pickled pig's feet, pickled stuff. About four days later, my mom's yelling at me, what's this fish doing? I'm like, I caught a fish on my own on my little cane pole. Right. So, you know, that trying to pickle a bluegill. I, well, I figured bluegill and water it was pickled right it was in a mason jar i put on the shelf and it was mounted and i could keep it and show it to all my buddies right (laughs) i didn't mind the stench i was seven fish steak (laughs) but you know there's one thing that you kind of alluded to and that's you know whether it's fishing archery golf frisbee the hand-eye coordination you know when you get that you that skill transcends the sport right doesn't matter what it is it's what tool you're using to hit that target it's once you get that down and i i mean from disc golf to frisbee to golf to you know horseshoes and i like archery that's my thing right but i don't hate fishing i actually kind of like fishing you know but it all plays and i'll give you a thing for your readers and everything else and this goes to when you always look at fishing the reason why you know patrick you and dave you know you guys do what you do and there's always a goal you always want it might sound arrogant but you truly want to be the best at what you want to do because it's going to push you to that drive to accomplish it you don't want to be mediocre the people that are mediocre there's there's millions of them out there the one percent club there's something in their mind that clicks that forces them to keep thinking outside the box looking at different things to, to better themselves and I'll give you a story of what helped me early when I was shooting for the Olympics for the fire department. It was one year I did pretty good. I took second overall, took second in skeet. And the mind game of going up and doing a shoot-off for, for skeet against my captain, and it was shoot until you miss. And I walked up with the 25-round box, and I'm sitting in ready. And the entire fire department, the, the whole state's there, they're watching. And he comes up behind me with a wheelbarrow with 5,000 rounds of ammo. And I looked at him and I'm like, what the? and he goes, well, I'm not going to miss. And I, was, and I missed the first shot and I took this, uh, silver. He got gold and he, he rolled all of his ammo back. So I went to a good friend of mine. His dad was in the military, George Ross. I said, hey, next year I'm going to shoot the limit. I want to win. What do I need to prepare myself a year in advance? How hard do I have to work to get to this? And the crazy question was, he goes, well, how many tournaments are you shooting? And I go, one. And he goes, well, how many rounds? I go, got a hundred and skeet, got a hundred and doubles. I got sporting clays, blah, blah, blah. So it ended up being like five different competitions for the whole thing. And I go, yeah, five, but I'm only fit or, or shooting one tournament. And he goes, no, how many tournaments are you going to shoot? And when it clicked and this went on for an hour, I thought he was a crazy old bat. And when I said 800, cause I was going to shoot 800 rounds total. He goes, every round is a tournament. And it clicked. I was just at the right age where I sucked. It sucked in where I knew that perfection is not the total end game. That will come when everything else is in line. But if you want to be the best fisherman, the best archery shooter, the best black powder, that one moment from standing up there, getting your tools ready, follow through your lead, 
visually focusing that you accomplished your goal. And once that's done, being able to turn off the light switch and go to the next tournament, which would be the, the second bird. And it clicked and I came home with five golds the next year. I, ran, I took everything. And as I transitioned into bass fishing, anything that you guys are teaching on Radcast, what, what you're trying to get to the listeners and the youth and even older people is no matter what you're going after, take your time and make one cast, make one shot, make one approach or stock, because you'll never get to that second one if you screw up the first the first couple steps. And that's what took me to another level of going. So, Bill, that's very reminiscent of I went first 10 years archery elk hunting. My goal was a 300-inch bull elk with a bow, right? Goose egg, year after year after year. Now it's uh, been seven for seven. But there was a mind switch that was, you know, and it was very simply, I just wanted to get as many stocks as I could in because eventually something was going to go right, right? And I'm just like blowing stock after blowing stock after blowing stock and, oh, well, go on to another one. Finally, I switched to, no, I'm going to wait during that whole season until there's that one stock that I can tell everything is right and then I'm going to go after it, right? That's a really hard mental switch to go from just quantity over quality, right? Especially, you know, and you're talking about it in the skeet world of every round is I'm going to make sure I'm not going to squeeze the trigger until everything's perfect, right? Instead of just, I'm going right. to go to as many rounds as I can and eventually I'll get a gold. So what pushed you into the bass tournament world from just kind of, you know, because I, I kind of heard it, but what really sparked in your mind that, hey, I'm going to take my Olympic shooting and I'm going to take this to the bass tournament world? Okay, you're going to laugh at this. My new, my new wife at the time. So we get married. I'm in the department. We, we get a new house together. And it's a Saturday morning early. I go fish a tournament. This is a 93. I go, or, yeah, I go fish a tournament. I don't think I won the tournament, but I had the big fish of the tournament. And I ended up coming home with 3000 bucks. I came home, put the boat array, got my rifle, went up, and it was the end of deer season. And I got a nice forky up above the house. So I take that down, put it over my shoulder, came home. My dad was a butcher, too, a chef. So field dressing, like, we're good at it. But I brought the thing down. I'm, I'm cooling it down. It's hanging in the backyard. I'm in the garage reloading because Sunday there's a trap and skeet tournament up here at Oak Tree, a local tournament. This is all in one day. My, my new wife came out. She looked in the backyard. There's a, a naked deer hanging from the rack. <laughs> my boat's a wreck. I got blood over me, and I'm, I'm reloading. And she just came in, and she goes, pick a sport. Pick something. <laughs> You're going so far in all these other directions. Pick something. And you know what? I, I give her a lot of the credit because she made me focus on something. And I, I'm sitting there looking at, you reload. You, you spend a couple hundred dollars shooting, you know, you get a hundred, hundred straight patch. Um, and you come home with a hundred straight patch and you're out a couple hundred bucks every time you, you do that. And you're not sponsored by, you gotta be like a big, big guy to get sponsored in the shooting industry and fishing. I'm saying, man, I went out in, in less than eight hours. I made three, 3000 bucks, got to fish out in the outdoors, competed, which I love to do. I think, you know, honestly, I think that's more profitable where if I got good enough, that my hobby would turn into almost like a business where it would support itself, where I wouldn't take away from our family. So when you look at anything in life, there are so many different levels, uh, categories 
that you need to check off because you can enjoy something a lot, but if you don't have the funds or the, the mind or the attitude to work to enjoy it, you're going to find yourself in the hole. And then what we call it fish and chicken is you're fishing with no money or you're hunting with no money. So you're always afraid to take that secondary chance, that, that next step to go better because the funds aren't there or the backing's not there. So I give a lot of it to my wife, man. She said, Hey, focus on something. And I go, Hey, I'm good at a lot of stuff. I'm really good at fishing. And it's something I don't think anybody's took to that next level of education. Like there is so much that was, is, is still missing in fishing and you probably see it in hunting and everything else. There's stuff that's missing that somebody that wants to be good at what they do, a, a student of their own game, sometimes there's not the education out there to it. You have to learn it yourself. And, and seeing that I've been able to, uh, I've been t- able to take a career and not only enjoy it, but I could compete in it. Um, has my ups and downs. I've blanked a lot of times, but, um, there's enough there that I sleep well at night, waking up the next morning, knowing I'm going to go fish again. Right. And so starting off, obviously, I mean, you, you picked the one thing and you started going after it. What was it that was kind of your big break that kind of put you really on that bass tournament fishing scene? What was that big moment for you? You know what, in any sport, especially fishing, there's a lot of politics. There's a lot of you don't want to say there's a lot of wackos out there. there. There's always the bad crowd and everything else, but fishing for big fish, it was such a, um, it was, it was a weird category that some guys were doing it. They were doing very well. Um, the big bait guys back in the day, you know, the, the Gary Harrisons and the Bob Krupies and Danny Cadotas And it just, there was a group of guys when I was this little kid. So everybody had these bass boats and all fancy stuff. And dad and I had a 14 foot Balco. And then when I moved out of the house, when I became a fireman, my first boat was a nine foot sea eagle blow up that I fished for big fish. 50 pound limits came in that little blow up when everybody else was in these $60,000 boats. As I became more proficient, even in the blow up, seeing what big fish really paying attention to my environment and watching fish. And I'll come to the secret of how my success in fishing is when I saw that I had some older guys say, Hey, you want to fish a tournament? So Harry, the hat on the old time fireman and stuff. And he, he made a hat trick, uh, swim bait back in the early nineties. We fished our first tournament together and that kind of got me out there. And, uh, it went from there to fishing. I wanted to catch big fish and the mindset back there. A lot of guys thought it was almost a luck thing. You couldn't be proficient at always catching a kicker fish. And I, I fished so many years guys by myself in team tournaments. That way I could throw lures that big anytime I want and, and fish the fish instead of worrying about my partner in the back to, to learn the sport. So it started early. I think my first tournaments were in 90. Um, but that was after I really started catching a lot of big fish and felt that, uh, nobody ever really taken the just, targeting trophy fish and tournament fishing and being able to morph the two and being consistent at it. There's nothing really out there. So I, I was young enough and stupid enough to say, Hey, I'm going to do it. And that kind of got me in the fishing part of stuff, you know? So, um, it it happened in the nineties, early, early nineties. And luckily I started catching a lot of big fish. And my goal was, even if I came in 20th place, I'm going to walk away with at least 3000 bucks for big fish option which I did a lot. And then, um, I got into the, some of the bigger tournaments and fortunately hooked up with some companies back in the day 
where I was able to fish Bassmasters out here. And I think the big, big turning point in that was uh, fishing Bassmasters at Lake Powell in 97 and winning it on a lake I've never been before. And uh, that, that helped open the door even more into the, the bigger magazines, publications, um, limelight. But I was doing big bait stuff with the uh, fishermen and North American fishermen and bassin and bass west and one bass for, for many, many years. So it's a long path. It's a long path. So you mentioned these tournaments. If you could just out of the blue pick one angler that you'd fish one of these tournaments with, who'd you pick and why would you pick them? You know what? It, the, the cool question is I, I picked my dad because my dad's my idol and it would be really cool if we were, we never got to fish a tournament together just with health reasons and all that stuff. It'd be really cool to sit in the boat and just stick it to him. Every time I made him my net boy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that would be number one tournament anglers. There's so many, and that's a load, you know, that's a loaded question, but when you look at somebody out in the the fishing industry, that very well versed, um, you got to look at their personalities too. You got to find a team. It's like, you know, you and Patrick, you guys are becoming a team. You guys get each other. If there is one I'd like to be in the boat with, Rick Clun has always been one of those guys I always appreciated because he looked at different things than just cut and dry. He looked at environment and, and just his mindset. And, and hearing his old stories when he was younger, when he got his butt kicked in the tournament, he stayed there and then talked to the winners and then turned around, got right back on the water and then went at it to, to find their bite, figure it out figure out if it was exactly what they said or, or if it's something different, they're close. So I think it would really be cool to fish with Clun as a tournament angler. My favorite angler, or there's two that I have fished with is Al Linder and Roland Martin. Roland Martin. I spent a week at his house in Florida for all of, and you know, you always look at personalities. We're all wing nuts. I mean, it, it's just, it is, it, but when you see a passion where he goes, Hey, we're going to get up at five o'clock to go fish o- Okeechobee. And I'm in the kitchen at four 30 and I walk in there and he's already drinking his coffee. He's waiting for me. I'm sleeping in bed. He's waiting for me. He was like 75 at the time. We fished all day long, came home the next morning or the next day. He said, okay, we're going to go fish this part of the lake. Be ready at four uh, 30. I get down there at three 30. I'm like, I'm beating rolling into the kitchen. I'm going to be ready. He's sitting there waiting for me, drinking a cup of coffee. (laughs) (laughs) You see that type of passion, the old school love for sports that it it drives you to the point where you can't, you can't sleep. You still dream the passion of that one thump and that hick or the, the letting the arrow go and the stick on a big bull elk. That passion drives you. I saw that in, in Roland and then Al Linder, I fished with Troy, his son, for years in tournaments. We've won TOCs. We've won boats. We've won a lot of tournaments. But Al would snowboard down here in California with his wife, Mary. And I got to fish in the boat with Al for months. And same thing. When you look at the old guard of bass fishing, the dance, Linders, Roland Martin, saltwater fishermen, foot pallet, um, all these guys, they brought a certain work ethic into our sport that you do not see nowadays. You do not see people out there working as hard as the, the people back then when they had nothing and they made something at it. And a lot of times everybody has something now where it's easy to just go on the internet and read something, watch YouTube, go get a bait real quick from tackle warehouse or wherever you're going to get it within a day, go out there and start fishing. But they wake up at nine o'clock in the morning, they sleep in, 
They always miss the sunrise and the sunset. Those are the people that I want to put myself around because any good angler or sportsman will always be around the best, the best they can be to challenge them to be better. So those are the three guys. Rick Clun, Alan, Roland Martin, and then Papa would be number one. Yeah, that's awesome, man. Thanks for sharing that. I, I was really curious about that one because you fished with some really great folks over the years. So that's that's really cool to hear about. And this is another one that kind of follows up with that. What has been the most rewarding thing over the years fishing tournaments for you? What's been the most re- rewarding thing for you personally? You know what? that That's another loaded question. There's a couple. You got to do a couple different categories. I think the most rewarding in fishing for myself is being able to be open-minded enough to be able to not get, not fall into the rut is years ago. I was so hardcore big bait swim baits. I would do that 24 seven. It wouldn't matter if I went out for a week and never caught a fish. The goal was catching big fish. And as things changed in California and quagga lockdowns and lack of trout plants and just mismanagement of our fisheries by people that, didn't really care about the outdoors. There's other things behind it. You start seeing things change. And a lot of people have a hard time of changing. They have a hard time of putting down a big bait rod with a 12 inch swim bait, turn around and then picking up a little ferry wand, a spinning rod that you catch a little trout on and you put a little crappie jig on it and you go out there and you still catch big fish. And, and I think the rewarding part for me is I've always been able to move and adjust through the years that I've not been one trick pony. I've always been able to try to build on so many different categories. So that's one big thing. Um, another big thing, I think, when fishing pal with Bassmasters, you know, Rick Clun was there. Some of the biggest names in Bassmasters was there back in the day. And when you get to walk up on a stage and hold up a trophy from Bassmasters, and you look out in the crowd and you see like Rick Clun and some of your idols that been fishing for forever in that that league. And you say, man, I could, I could actually do this. I could literally compete against the big guys in my own, not following anybody, making my own path. And and I have something. And I think that was another really big stepping stone. And then the third one is being able to, uh, being able to get back into the fishing with designing lures, writing books, doing DVDs and all that other stuff uh, three years ago taking a chance to put everything on the line and give a hundred percent of your time to the youth. And, uh, I, I put on a the big bass zone junior championship for three years and was able to give back almost a million bucks to these kids, you know, in every state across the U S and have a, you know, TV show for them and, and prizes and, and treat them like the anglers they should be, you know, Katie Carey is one of them, that family. I mean, that, that tournament touched lives and changed people's lives from the youth all the way up to the grandparents. So that was another big thing. So I think that question going to anybody that's listening to Radcast, there are so many things that you could be proud of doing, doing, don't, don't get yourself stuck in one rut where you say, Hey, I've accomplished this and that's all you do. Or you try to hang your hat on that one thing forever and you're going to fade away, you know, so keep moving. That's awesome. Yeah. And if you haven't listened to those episodes with Katie and you need to go back and listen to them because you should hear the excitement in her voice and just hear her talk about the opportunities that she had fishing those tournaments. And 
I mean, it was just so fun to watch her. And then, of course, watching her dad just glow as, as she talked about it. I mean, it's just one of the coolest experiences I've had on the podcast is watching those two as they talked about the experience. It's just so cool that you guys were able to do that. Yeah, they are good people. They're what this whole thing's about. And Big Jim, you don't want to mess. I don't want to meet him in an alley at night. <laughs> but the passion that they have together, man, if you could bottle that up and give it to all the kids out there that, you know, would never have a shot there's some magic on what they bring to the table. And that's all I was trying to do is throw a little gas on some sparks with people across the U S with the youth. And I've seen some kids do some really fantastic going to college now doing their own little podcast shows, you know, doing their lures, you know, it's really cool to be able to say I had a little bit of a part of it, but in anything you could only give so much to somebody and it's gotta be them to take that opportunity to run with it. So Take it. Take an opportunity and run with it. You just keep keep doing it. You're going to fall. Get up, brush yourself off, and keep running again. And over the years, like I look at guys like Allender, like yourself, you know, you've inspired a lot of people. Because I remember reading about your giant swim baits sitting in the middle of Wyoming, you know, getting my In Fisherman magazine. I'm like, what's this about? You know, this guy's using these huge lures that look like trout that I catch here in the lakes here around Cheyenne, you know, where I grew up. And I'm thinking, man, these bass will eat those, you know, and it's it's just really neat the impact that you've had over the years and the reach that you've had been very blessed in that, that, you know, you've had the opportunity to influence a lot of people in the bass industry and beyond because, you know, you and I've talked about this before. It's not just bass that like those kind of things either. There's lots of other kinds of fish. And uh, so I just want to commend you on that. I think it's really neat. And you got to talk about one of our sponsors here for a little bit before we start talking about lure design. Another good friend of mine, Pat O'Grady, he's a lure designer for PK Lures. PK has been around for quite a while now. Pat had a dream as well. He developed this dream and this lure and these systems after just watching fish down an ice hole on Seminole Reservoir and Glendo Reservoir here in Wyoming. And you can check out his products that he's come up with over the years, the the PK Flutterfish, PK Spoon, and a whole bunch of other ones. Uh, right now, a lot of the walleye guys are pulling a lot of the spinner products that they've come up with over the last few years. So they've got like the Dakota Disc, which is one of my favorites, the PK Wobbler. It just gives a little bit more action to that crawler as you're pulling them around the lake. Go to pklure.com. You can check those out. And then my daughter, Katie, she's kind of like Katie Carey in some ways, except for she's more on like the film and development side. She made a little video for us that I actually put on our YouTube channel. You'll have to go watch that. We went out this spring and we were trolling PK crankbaits for big trout. So we were catching like 20 to 24 inch rainbow trout on these, on these crankbaits trolling around Boyson Reservoir here. So go check that out. It's real exciting. And if you want to pick up those Ridgeline crankbaits, you can go to pklure.com. But I did want to talk to you about lure design. And you're, you're one of a few different lure designers I've had on the show. It's, it's always interesting to me, whether I'm talking to you, Larry Dahlberg, Pat O'Grady, just kind of some of the similarities, you know, why you went and developed whatever you developed. So tell me a little bit about what sparked your interest into getting into lure design and what kind of motivated you to pursue that. Yeah, I have the story. You know, a lot of people have never really asked it in that position. Um, growing up with my dad, Fishing at Lake Pyramid, Calf Steak back in the day, we're talking mid-80s, you know, when there was a bass fishing, nobody's really targeted the big fish with big baits back in that time frame. The most you'd get for striper fishing, because the stripers are keyed in where they planted trout. 
So I was taught by an, uh, a guy with my dad in 1985 how to make these big swim baits out of oars. So I was carving and making wooded jointed uh, swim baits, like what you would call like an AC plug, like in 85. This precurses everything. But the funny thing is my dad, we worked at the swap meet. So we always sold old style baits. We were, my dad had a sporting goods swap meet. So we sold archery and golf and baseball and, you know, fishing rods. And we always dealt with old, old school stuff. Well, they had a lure out there in 1932, I think, or 36. It was called a Zigwag. It's basically a joint. It's like an AC plug. It's, it's, everybody says, hey, we built something new. Go back to our forefathers. Our forefathers were so friggin' brilliant and thought of so much with so little in their hands. Um, most everything was done. Where you see the transition from then to now is the realism part of it is really taken to that next level. But 85, I started making wood plugs. Um, in the early 90s, I worked and helped with the Castake soft bait company and uh, helped with swim baits and doing field testing and, and catching a bunch of fish. And I was still building some of my own wood plugs. And I got a, a opportunity to work with the company Spro from Tim Norman. I came up to me in, uh, I think it was 2005, and he asked me, he goes, what are we missing in the fishing industry? Why, you know, where's this big bait thing going? And I go, it's an untapped market. The only problem is it's so isolated to like, say, Southern California, or it's just, it's so small niche places where anglers would have confidence in it is one. And secondly, price point. My dad, they used to call them bucket of lures. And he used to walk down with a bucket of wooden lures that he made out of, you know, table legs and, and rocking chairs. And I remember him selling a lure to two guys that were lawyers down at Ca uh, Pyramid Fish for Stripers, 300 bucks for a wooden leg. They threw it out. They hooked up like a 25-pound striper on a spinning rod. I remember being a kid. That thing spooled them, blew the whole thing, took everything away from them. They sat there, and I watched them come back, and they paid my dad another 300 bucks for another lure. Wow. And I was like, Wow. But it was such an isolated thing. So now going with other companies, my goal was, I think big fish, big bait fishing for you guys in Wyoming, for people in Maryland, New York, there's some tricks on targeting bigger fish in your area. But the big, big baits, when people kind of pigeonhole them, um, it was a price point. And my thing was building a really, really cool lure where everybody could afford. And if I can get you, Patrick, to throw a, an eight or nine inch bait on your home lake where you're catching trout, but there's bass there. And all of a sudden you start catching bass. You're more willing now to go to those custom lure designers and spend one, two, $300 because you have faith in it. So that's where that big switch is. Was I was able to try to get baits and build baits um, that a lot of people can afford. And I think that built that whole big bait arena, you know, where, you know, it's, it's not as taboo now going across state lines. You know, if you have big fish in your water, it doesn't matter what it is. Big baits catch big fish. Yes, they so do. So that was a, yeah, so that was a big part of it. And when we come full circle, uh, just recently, a year ago, I got hooked up with Fish Lab Tackle. Southern California, they're underneath the umbrella of Akuma fishing rods. These people, I fished with these guys my whole career, like Mark Rogers and Bennett and stuff. All these guys, we've all known each other for 25 years. And an opportunity came up and say, hey, Bill, we got a new fishing company. We'd love to talk to you. And you go down to a place 
And within five minutes, the smiles are just getting bigger and bigger in the room. And they go, what do you have still in your back pocket? And I go, oh, I, I pull out a book that, but I pull out a book with, with designs, with stuff. Like I have drawings and stuff for, for years. And they're like, what's that? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, that's my secret base. Have you ever built? No, I've been waiting. How long? 25 years. What? <laughs> and you haven't told anybody else? I said, oh, I'm not going to give away anything for nothing, you know? And within the last year, we have come together, our team at Fish Lab, and we have built some of the most insane, insane, detailed looking baits that you are going to see. And the cool thing is, it's going to be cross. It's going to be saltwater, freshwater, trout, bass. And then when you see the, this is going to blow your mind. When you see the little nymph mm-hmm. and you see that thing, that's the cool thing. And that's what always keeps me driving is I'm never putting myself where I don't want to go down a road where it just stops and I just lose, I lose everything. I lose that momentum. And luckily I've been able to hook up with fish lab in Nakuma. And I'm telling you the, the, the future is bright just for the fishing industry, for myself to keep me motivated, to try to push me to a new level and to open up the door for other anglers that would love to be a part of this that thought they couldn't because of the price point. And uh, most high-end baits, people add their time of learning to a lot of the baits. You know, I, I don't know if you've ever heard the story of the lady in France walking down the road and she sees a painter there and she goes, do you do portraits? And he goes, oh yeah, can you do mine? Sure. And then he does a portrait of her like in five minutes. And they turn around and they go, okay, I'm done. She goes, Beautiful. how much? He goes, $10,000. She goes, wait, wait, wait. You only took five minutes doing that. And he goes, no, it's my whole lifetime. Took his whole lifetime to be able to do that. The difference, what I'm trying to do and what we're trying to do at Fish Lab is with my knowledge for 35 years chasing big fish, Mike Bennett, Mark Rogers, the whole team, we're giving hundreds of years of combined fish knowledge of targeting bigger fish and, and what they're looking for, for nothing. We're giving that back. We're building the best lures possible and not putting that price tag on it. That's our passion to give back to the industry. So maybe some young kid is going to be able to tie in his first swim bait in his farm pond back in Illinois, catch an eight or nine pounder. And who knows, he might, that might be enough to to turn the light switch on. He might be the next Kevin Van Dam. He might be the next Rick Lund or Al Linder, you know, that, that makes it go forward. So that's, that's the cool thing of what I've been doing for building lures and, and moving. So what makes a really good big bass lure? You know what? I'm going to talk bass fishing for you guys. Cause I love, this is a lot, people don't ask. You have different players when you go compete. For elk hunting, you have the elk and you got the archer and where he stands and the forage and bass fishing is the same thing. And what I learned a long, long time ago is I have been able to look through the eyes of my competitor. And when you look through the eyes, if if you stop looking at fish, when you guys go trout fishing, you're still thinking, here's a body of water, here's a current scene, here's a deadfall. You know, they're somewhere in this water column, top, middle, bottom, and we're going to try these different baits. I'm going, I'm a trout. Where's the thermocline? Where's my shadows? Where's my forage? How does that forage move? And I'm always trying to create the illusion of realism. So the fish itself thinks it's accomplishing its goal. The difference between hunting and becoming the prey is night and day difference. When you hunt something, you could be at a stationary point, pull back, you know, everything's right. You got a, a humane kill. It's done. Bass fishing, you're not shooting a bass. You're making the bass think. You, and you don't even want to say, hey, I'm going to try to trick this bass into hitting because it's all hand it's hand movements. It's not going to be consistent as you move forward. So you might get something, 
like you said, you do it a hundred times, you might catch one finally and go, oh, I caught one. Now I want to do a hundred casts and then catch 110 pounders. And in doing that, I got to look through the fish's eyes. And when you start doing that and start going, what is that fish feeling right now? What is it? Oh, the, here comes the wind line. Here comes the mud line. Does that fish see birds, blue herons against the shoreline? He does. Do you know that's where it's going to be a funnel where the bait fish? Yeah. That's, so my whole thing is always being able to look through the bass's eyes. Now, when you say, hey, what is the best lure for big fish? I've caught 20 pound fish. <laughs> Everybody, he's holding up a big, big fish. <laughs> that, that was a humdinger. A humdinger. I think it's more than a humdinger, but okay. <laughs> so I caught fish that size on a crappie jig, a little teeny eight ounce crappie jig. I caught that fish or those fish on that size on 12 to 13 inch swim baits. Understanding, don't ever pigeon your hole yourself. Like this is the only golf club. This is the only bow and arrow. This is the only graphite. This is the only blade. Everything has a moment in time that becomes perfection. In fishing, the angler that really looks at his environment and understands what the bass or any big fish are targeting at that moment and able to put themselves in the prey, what they're eating shoes. It's like uh, um, Chevy Chase. No, 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 no. With the golf ball, become the golf ball, you know, Caddyshack. Mm -hmm. Stupid movie. But tell you what, there's some truth behind that where when you throw a crankbait or a swim bait and you become the bait and you put yourself in a position of getting mugged, ambushed, jacked, killed, knifed, the whole bit, you're going to see a whole different world out there on how fish eat and, and things. So, I would say any, and I have a long story going into like, what's your favorite lure? If I'm targeting and I only want to try to catch big fish, it's the biggest lure conceivable within that body of water. That would be the prey for the biggest fish of that water. So if you're in your lakes, your ponds, and there's six or seven inch bluegill, I would be throwing maybe a seven, eight inch bluegill or an eight inch swim bait. Cause that's going to target the biggest fish in that water. You go back to even, you know, Utah or Wyoming, you might have like small shad. Um, you might have four inch shad that's running in that area. Well, I'm going to increase to a six inch. I'm going to go a little bit bigger than match the hatch to have more drawing power, but I'm always going to try to position myself in a way to get killed. And then the really brilliance of it is understanding seasons of what's going on. Is there a mayfly hatch? is there a mayfly hatch, you know, dragonfly? Is it um, springtime where these big fish are only targeting smaller baits? I'll put on a 16th ounce hair jig and I've caught, I don't know how many fish over 10 pounds I've caught on a floating fly and a hair jig. So I'm not going to say that there's one magic bait, but your mind is a very powerful tool. And if you could look through the fish that you're going after through their eyes, you're going to be able to pick up any bait in the box at the right time and catch big fish. It's a loaded question, but like I said, it's, I'm way out there. There's a whole, a lot of people have been missing a lot of stuff and I've just been fortunate to be able to see in the water, the clarity in, in California to watch fish do what they do and what triggers them. And the better you are, you better be better at understanding what the prey you're going after is. And that's going to be the biggest difference. It changes the whole world is being able to see through the fish's eyes. And I'm glad you brought that up because it is a big deal. Like, and the other thing that you said, you know, is upsizing. A 
lot of people would be like, what are you talking about? I want to have the exact same size as whatever swimming, you know, if like it's a two inch minnow, I want to have a two inch minnow bait, right. And throw that out there. So, you know, you and I talked about that, you know, about for walleye and whatnot, you're like, oh man, I'd be throwing like a nine, 10 inch <laughs> lure for those walleye. But really that makes a lot of sense because like fish and walleye at night, they're going to key in on that more than they would on a smaller bait. Right. Yeah. And, and I'll, a really cool thing, a good buddy of mine, one of my best friends who wrote the book with me, Mike Jones from Bassmasters. Um, I just did, went out and I did some field testing with a new four inch uh, fish lap uh, swim bait, the four inch. And he goes, what are you doing different? Like what, cause we always talk strategy, like what is truly going on? And I told him, and this is funny. It goes right there with you, especially trout fishermen. Everybody's always saying match the hatch, right? The problem is there is no problem with matching the hatch. If you have a place where the bass or big trout are targeting a four-inch swim bait, right? You know that that's their meal of choice at the moment. Matching the hatch, if I put a four-inch bait on to really match the hatch, what separates your bait from 100,000 other baits? This is why you have to look through the eyes of the fish. If you're in isolated areas that have a good point, in plus value where it's a home fish where there's a big fish that can wrap a crowd in this one area to feed like that's his home is that a place where there's always a ton of bait or is it the, the offshoots it's where bait will always come through even in singles and they'll always be able to get a meal when i fish in those matching the hatch is money because you're only bringing one bait to the game right if I'm fishing where there's big piles of shad and the fish are blowing up and everything, you have to really sit there and think, if I throw this in a pile of shad, say, I don't know, a ball of shad of 10,000, and it's matching the hatch, how do you separate your bait now with 10,000 other baits swimming along with it? You know why you twitch a bait? So Jones goes, hey, why do you twitch a bait in open water? Because when you throw out a bait that has realism to it or waves or hydrodynamics, have you ever thrown a spinner bait and have little bait fish follow your blades in? Yeah. You're creating a ball of bait. Well, I do directional changes in open water because what it's going to do is called spotlighting. The bait itself, the real stuff blows away from it because they're going, what just happened? And you isolated and you spotlighted your bait where a bass could look now. And there's a, it's, it's like, hello. And it's by itself is no different than a, a smaller animal in a pack where coyotes are chasing it down. They're going to go for the weakest link. You just visually made a weakest link by doing a directional change in open water that there's a ball of bait around your bait. So understanding that now, if I go and I fish this right against the shore and I bring it up against funnels, you got to create the illusion of realism. I'm a bait fish going down the bank. Ooh, here's a rock or funnel, or here's the V. When a fish pushes a bait fish into a funnel to eat, Bait fish tendencies are doing directional changes. They flare. They go, oh, crap, which way do we go? And they do this. And what happens is the bass just sits there, and no matter where he goes, he opens his mouth and eats it because that's what real life does. I try to mimic real life in this bait fish because I'm going to fish it just like I'm going to be, oh, I went down the wrong road, and I'm going to get pinned here, and I'm going to go, oh, crap, and that's my directional changes. And I have triggered fish over 10 pounds at my feet watching them where you twitch it by the shore and, and a bass their eyes light up they roll their back their colors change because their fins they tighten up like they're going to get in a fight their their scales lift up on their back they turn a different color and they'll suck a fish in your bait by six to six inches to a foot and you're going man 
I didn't trick that, that bass thought it was the real thing. It was completely a whole different mindset. So matching the hatch is good, but understanding every element for every action, there's an equal reaction. What are you doing when you're matching the hatch? And then how do you separate your hatch from everything else? Is it just color change? If everything's a blue back herring and I throw something white, guess what happens? It spotlights it. It makes it pop in a thing. It's like uh, people walking down the street. Everybody looks the same. And then you have this one cool kid with a 12 inch mohawk and, you know, purple hair and all that stuff. He's just, he's, he's matched the hatch. He's one of us, but man, everybody sits back and goes, Whoa. And even people will separate and go, Whoa, check that out. It's just, everything is so related in life that you can take back into fishing and hunting. You just have to be smart enough to look for it. So when you're designing those lures, because I've, I've asked Pat O'Grady this question and a few others, how many times do you have a failed bait before you have something that you're like, no, this, this is exactly what I want. This is doing what I want. How many times are you having to go back to the drawing board on some of these? In the beginning, when you experiment and you've never, you don't have like a template to follow, uh, an idea or a concept of how things work. Man, when I was a kid, man, dad and I, we made a whole bunch of crap. We made stuff like, wow, that didn't work at all. And then my mom comes in and goes, why is our table leg only have three, three legs on it? Because we cut a table off. Next thing you know, there's no table in there. And we finally dialed in with weight or shape or size. Luckily, when I was a kid, I've done enough trial and error that, you know, 20 years of making mistakes, if you're really good, now it takes you 20 minutes if you're really smart and remember all the mistakes, you, you start at a different level. So being with fish lab in this last year, I mean, the details of a wrap that we never, I had drawings of this, I hand drew it, but doing a double um, buzz bait wrap with the details and shapes and sizes and everything else. Literally that was my first drawing. We went back into the feet and we did 10 different samples of the feet because I wanted to make sure that, at a slow speed, it looks like a rat actually swimming, kicking across the water. So um, some of the mechanical stuff, you could tweak on it for a while to get the right action, make sure it has the right pitch and yaw, um, turbulence, sound waves. There are certain things that you have to work at a little bit more. But when you come down to true realistic hydrodynamic baits, um, you'd be surprised that just with our six-inch gizzard shad and our four-inch shad, it was our first strike. We only modified this a couple things of maybe a bill or a little bit difference on the C shape of the kick, because depending on the C shape of the kick of a swim bait, it shows you the hydrodynamics of the low and high pressure system and how it will, will swim better and not as articulated or, or roll with a pitch or a yaw. So as you get better at building and designing, which practice makes perfect, no, perfect practice makes perfect because people could practice wrong your whole life and still suck. So <laughs> always pushing yourself for perfection. You're going to, you're going to get things done a lot quicker without having as many mistakes. And I think what the nice thing with fish lab and our team is there's a, a line of simplicity, you know, goes back to the fire department kiss, keep it super simple is try not to put the extra bells and whistles on something because no matter what, when you design a bait, you still have to make it functional and easy for the consumer and the fishermen so they can enjoy what you've been doing for years. So our baits are chunk and wind. You can do a lot with them, but a kid go out there and throw it out and just chunk and wind, come in and catch his personal best. So lure design is funny. I think the person who does it the longest seems to do it a little bit faster and easier with as, not as many hiccups. 
if they're passionate about it. There's a lot of guys out there that just comes out with lures. They look at this thing and you throw it one time and you go, ah, that looks really good. It, it sucks. <laughs> We're, yeah. And, and nobody ever takes another look at it. So that's where it comes with me. I'm, I've been doing very fortunate enough. I've been playing enough in the, the lure design game that uh, we don't have a lot of mess ups, you know, or going back to the drawing board. So if you had to take just one lure out fishing for bass, what would it be and why? Well, you guys got these good questions. Here's the deal. I love fishing. I I would have just as much fun catching a two and a half pound crappie, one pound bluegill, big large mouth, small mouth, trout. So if you said, hey, Bill, you got one bait to fish. I design these uh, doll hair jigs. We're going to come out with them for the fish lab. They're 16th ounce to 3 16th doll hair, you know, craft hair, awesome colors. I would have a box of little jigs, eighth ounce doll hair jigs, and I would be able to go fish anywhere in the world and catch fish. That's the difference of somebody saying, I'm just a hardcore big bass fisherman and a fisherman is I can throw on a black doll hair jig and catch a monster carp just as easy as I can come up to your lakes, put it on a bobber and catch a big old brown trout, go up to another lake, catch a big old smallie, come down to California, catch a big largemouth. So I think the smart answer, and truthfully, it would be a, a small hair jig. I, I, that, I would catch stuff everywhere. So where are guys going to be able to buy these new jigs you're coming out with? Uh, they're going to have to start following along with Fish Lab Tackle. We have them. I have them. We have them designed. Um, they, I've already won tournaments on them. <laughs> and, you know, so, and the cool thing is I built them before for another company, but they never wanted me to come out with a, a larger size frame. So now we have 16th, 8th, and 3 16th. And the colors, I mean, from like PB&J, you know, to the Black Widow, to the Shad colors, to the Blueback Herring, to a perch pattern. Mm-hmm. Like, you got some color. Like, the, the, the new jigs from, uh, it's going to be like BBZ Bio Finesse jigs from, from Fish Lab. I'm telling you, anybody, anywhere for any species, you're going to catch fish on. And that would be an honest, honest answer. I'm not going to say a big swim bait. <laughs> because you know somebody else probably but it's complete bs i still like catching fish I, i'm to the point where i want to put i want i want something tugging on into my line and uh that's that's the most common sense a jig will always be probably just a great lure for anybody to understand you can fish the entire water column top middle bottom you can create multiple illusions of realism from shad crawdad sculpin bluegill you can flip and pitch with them. So it, it jig is, a jig is by far the money bait. So this concludes part one with Freshwater Fishing Hall of Famer, Bill Simentel. Make sure to tune in next time for part two, where we continue discussing bass fishing tactics and much more with the Hall of Famer. And of course, if you want other Radcast Outdoors content, go to radcastoutdoors.com. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google, wherever you get your podcasts, and we'll see you next time.